You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefe, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. After the failed attempt to raid Guayaquil in November 1684, our small fleet of English pirates retreated to Isla de Plata, Drake's Isle, off the coast of Peru. The three assembled crews, under Captains Edward Davis, Charles Swan, and Peter Harris, all sat down to discuss what their next move might be. They had men, and all of them were armed with muskets, but they didn't have enough men to take on any large cities. They had ships, but only the Bachelor's Delight of Captain Davis could properly be called a warship, carrying 36 guns. Swan's vessel, Signet, carried only 14, and Harris sailed a bark with only four swivel guns. The rest of their fleet was comprised of two fat-bottomed merchant ships carrying supplies and maybe ten canoes. That's not a lot of firepower. It was here on Drake's Isle that William Dampier made his case for occupying the fort at Santa Maria and using their recently captured slaves to extract the gold in the mines there. It wasn't the most popular plan in the world. It was plausible, They could have done it. They had the ships and the guns and the men to defend Santa Maria. They had food to last and allies nearby. With those slaves in tow, they had a labor force to work the mines, and they had women as well. The inclusion of slaves makes the whole plan a lot uglier. Other pirate havens, both before and after this, chose not to use slaves, Some of them even offered a haven to escaped slaves, and many pirate ships had freed slaves on board, in the crew. They had the same rights and privileges as any other crewman. I would like to say that the pirates here on Drake's Isle debated the proposal to occupy Santa Maria on grounds of immorality, but that's probably not what most of the pirates quibbled about. Any people of African descent on the crew probably had problems with it, but for most of the pirates, well, it sounded like a lot of work. They would have to settle down and be tied to a piece of land. The potential rewards were huge, but mining gold and processing ore, well, it's just not the same as stealing it from the Spanish. And then, yeah, forcing a thousand people to do the work would make them were really no better than the Spaniards. It would make them very much like the rich landowners that ran plantations back in Jamaica. These weren't rich aristocratic landowners. They were pirates. They were accustomed to sailing as free men and stealing what they needed. The Brethren of the Coast didn't occupy cities. Well, they would occupy cities for a ransom, but they wouldn't take them over. It went contrary to everything that they were, and the reasons that they chose to live this life in the first place. You see, Dampier, who suggested this plan, wasn't a pirate, not at heart. He was a naturalist and a scientist and an explorer. He may have sailed with the buccaneers and even taken a share and even gone so far as to kill men alongside them, but he was never really one of them. Nor was Lionel Wafer or even Basil Ringrose. They were there, they were taking part, but they were never really initiates. I always think of Hunter S. Thompson, 
when he was researching his book Hell's Angels. He rode with the angels, he drank with them, and he got into all sorts of trouble with them, but he was never really one of them. And really, the Hell's Angels, and biker gangs in general, aren't the worst comparison to make with pirates. There was a line that George Carlin had, something about grimy outlaws with their bellies full of beer out looking for a good time, property destruction, and killing police. Dampier wasn't that, though. He was a gentleman, if a bit rough around the edges, but he was a scholar. He was the sort of man that would think of occupying a Spanish fort and taking control of the gold there in the hope of recognition from England. Who knows, maybe an official commendation, or even perhaps a governorship. It was here in his book that he writes in big, bold letters about the Spanish prophecy of English privateers of the West Indies who would make such great discoveries as to open a door to the South Seas. That probably sounded good in England and in his head, but he was at this moment surrounded by several hundred grimy, violent, free men. And more were coming. This is episode 64, People of Desperate Fortunes. Captain Charles Swan wanted nothing to do with it either. He wasn't a pirate, he was a merchant, and really all he wanted was to get himself and his ship back to England in one piece. And he wasn't alone on this, but Dampier did convince a few of the pirates, and even those that weren't convinced, well, they didn't have any better plans on the table. So on the 23rd of December, 1684, the pirates sailed north toward the Gulf of San Miguel. On the way there, they found a wrecked Spanish vessel on the coast of a small island. Davis ordered a search party sent ashore to check out the wreckage. Now, they didn't find any survivors or any valuables, but they did come across a trove of letters. Captain Davis gave the letters to William Dampier to peruse. Perhaps he would find something valuable in them. But it would take time for him to go through all of the letters, and the fleet sailed on. And then, near an island called Tobago, they encountered a small Spanish bark, which hailed them and then furled her sails. The bark waited for the English ships to come close, and when they did, the bark announced that he had news for the English. The merchant captain, who was, by accounts, appearing to be a low and greasy man, well, he told the pirates that he had encountered Captain John Eaton a few weeks earlier, and learned of the signet and bachelor's delight. He was a smuggler, you see, and he did a brisk trade with any privateers or Indians or anyone that just wanted to avoid paying the king's taxes. He also carried many of the tools necessary for privateering, powder and shot and guns and rum and steel. This was precisely what the pirates needed. They were encouraged to have learned of him. Unfortunately, the merchant said he had already sold all of his stock to Captain Eaton. His holds were bare. He could go back and restock, and if he did so, he would meet the English with everything they could have wished. So he asked them to wait, and he would sail for Panama and return soon thereafter. The pirates agreed. But they weren't stupid, these pirates. Any offer this good had to be looked into, but it was almost certainly too good to be true. On February 13th, in the night, a ship appeared and signaled with her lamp to the pirates. Captain Davis signaled back for the merchant to sail in closer. But Davis had men out in the canoes, waiting for any move that might be threatening. The merchant vessel sailed closer and then in closer, but it was too dark for anyone on board to make much out of the vessel. Then, one of the pirates noticed that she was trailing black smoke. It was a fire ship. Her holds weren't filled with goods, but instead they were filled with barrels of black powder. Those barrels were surrounded by hemp and dry hay, and all of that was coated in tar. Then, that entire concoction was lit, primed to explode, and set on a course to collide with Bachelor's Delight. And Bachelor's Delight wouldn't be able to steer clear in time. So Captain Davis ordered the canoes out. His men carried torches and fire pots and any manner of flame they could to ignite the ship before she reached Bachelor's Delight. They threw the pots that were filled with oil and tar and their torches. And the ship went up in flames, 
but she still sailed forward. So the crew of Bachelor's Delight had to cut the anchor loose and drift away, but it was still too slow to avoid the fire ship. She continued to come in. Davis prepared to give the order to abandon ship, but then, just a few yards away, the fire ship exploded. Burning timbers were launched into the night air, and great beams flew outward toward the Bachelor's Delight in, in every direction. The night was filled with smoke and cinders, and the crew of Bachelor's Delight rushed about to douse any flames that might reach her deck. But the ship was safe. The explosion hadn't damaged the hull or the masts. Edward Davis, though, wasn't the only captain to fight off an attack that night. The three crews under Davis, Harris, and Swan were arrayed strategically around the island. Captain Harris was in those smaller vessels, so he went unnoticed, but he was prepared to give aid to anyone that might need it. Captain Swan, though, well, it looked like he would be left alone, but he kept a sharp eye out, and one of his men noticed something in the water. It was almost too small to be noticed in the dark, but there was a man making his way to the stern of Signet, carrying something combustible to burn the rudder. The Spanish didn't want to sink Signet. That fire ship would explode when it reached Bachelor's Delight, but they wanted to capture the 5,000 pounds in goods that Signet carried. Captain Swan ordered his men to fire on the man. It's possible somebody hit him, but all they know is that he disappeared underwater and nobody saw him again. So the pirates were safe for the moment. But when morning came, the pirates had another problem. They had to collect their anchors. Bachelor's Delight had cut hers free and, you know, needed an anchor. They were having some trouble fishing it out of the water, though. The ropes were rotten that they were trying to use to pull it free. And then, from the other side of the island, dozens of canoes came into view. Bachelor's Delight and Signet faced up to meet the incoming canoes. They assumed it would be a follow-up to the attack the night before. Captain Harris took his bark around behind the canoes to encircle them, but the canoes just rowed on over. They hailed the pirates, first in English and then in French. They named themselves Freebooters out of the West Indies. All in all, 28 canoes arrived, carrying 280 men. They turned out to be Brethren of the Coast, both French and English, and their officers asked leave to board the Bachelor's Delight. They turned out to be two crews under French captains. The junior partner of the two was Captain Jean Lescouillet. The older captain who was in command of the expedition was Captain Francois Groinet. They had seen the burning ship the night before and decided to investigate. They rode in close, but only close enough to spy on the English ships until it was clear that they weren't Spanish and that they were probably buccaneers. Now, virtually nothing is known of Captain Lescouillet before this meeting. Captain Groinet, though, was already well known. He had arrived in the West Indies after the cessation of hostilities that ended the Third Anglo-Dutch War, or it's possible that he served on board a vessel during that war, but not as an officer. However, in 1681, he received a letter of marque from Governor Jacques Nebvu in Saint-Dominique. He sailed for the coast of Venezuela, which was close to where he made his home, and committed all sorts of depredations against the Spanish there. There was nothing earth-shattering, but he commandeered ships and stole cargo and killed people. That proved to be poor timing on his part, though. Only a few weeks after receiving that letter of mark, King Louis XIV sent officials from France to the New World with the express command to curb piracy. Now, Francois Groinet was captured and arrested by one of the king's agents in that effort, a man named Charles-Francois Dangin, Marquis de Maintenon. Dangin is a character worthy of his own episode. He was the perfect ideal, the French ideal, of what a buccaneer should be, rather really what a privateer should be. He was a nobleman from an old and ancient family that fell on hard times, so he sold his estate and sailed for the West Indies. As it happens, he actually sold it to a woman that would go on to marry the king. 
But during the war, he took command of a privateer vessel and led raids against the English. He gathered fleets of hundreds and hundreds of buccaneers to attack Dutch settlements. But at war's end, he stopped his privateering. He settled down and claimed a small island in the name of France, where he set himself up as the governor. He used his allies to tighten his grip on the island and then on trade in the region. He made himself a fortune doing that, and essentially he turned that one-time buccaneer hideout into a small, prosperous French colony. But then the order came down from France to curb privateering. So he stopped privateering and became one of the more successful and assiduous pirate hunters in the Caribbean. If you were a French dignitary or perhaps a naval officer, wouldn't that be exactly what you'd want from a privateer? A man who fought for France, who enriched himself without costing you anything, and then set about to expand the empire and build upon the wealth and prestige of France. Charles-Francois d'Angene was that ideal. Francois Groenet was not. He was a pirate. He was just a loathsome buccaneer. D'Angene arrested Groenet. He confiscated the stolen goods on board his vessel and revoked the letter of marque. And then he sent him back to Petit Guave. He wasn't intended to be prosecuted, just instructed to stop privateering. However, he didn't. Or rather, he turned from privateering to just good old-fashioned piracy. But he did get another opportunity. In November of 1683, Lorho de Graaf got a commission to attack Cuba at Santiago de Cuba. That was the raid in which the governor sent Jean Legoff to act as a military commander on board. That's the same raid where Legoff attempted to reprimand one of the buccaneers. That's the same on which the pirates mutinied, killed Legoff, and disbanded. They set sail for every corner of the West Indies to ravage the Spanish wherever they could. Francois Groenet was one of those who left the fleet after Legoff was killed. He sailed in a fleet of five ships led by Jean, Sieur de Bernanos, alongside Captains Vigneron, Blot, and Jean Rose. They wound up receiving a commission and raided the Spanish on the coast of Venezuela. This was part of Louis XIV's campaign against the Spanish during the War of Reunions. Very much like Lorho de Graaf, farther to the west, these privateers took advantage of that war to raid and pillage, and they even occupied a Spanish fortress for a time. Near the end of that campaign, in November of 1684, Michel de Grammont sent out a call to rally at Salt Tortuga. This was to be the beginning of a huge assault during the War of Reunions. However, the war came to an abrupt and unexpected end. The commissions were all revoked, and Michel de Grammont never showed up. The meeting never took place. So he and his fellow captains had to settle down and plan. By the beginning of 1685, though, word was already spreading of the raiding taking place in the Pacific. Peter Harris had already crossed the country at Darien, and Captain Townley was on his way right now. So two of the assembled French crews under Groenet and Lescouillet chose to sail for Golden Isle and then traverse the Isthmus. They met with the Kuna, as did anyone who passed through Darien, and then they met Captain Townley. Now, he was an Englishman and busy building canoes, but the two French captains already had canoes, so they went ahead and headed south, made their way to the Gulf of San Miguel. That's where they saw the burning ship that they rode in to investigate to find Captains Harris, Swan, and Davis. I always wonder, in moments like these, if any of these captains knew each other. Now, the two French captains certainly knew each other, and the English were old comrades by this point, but were the two groups familiar with each other? Twenty years earlier, they certainly would have been, back when the Brethren of the Coast were led by men like Henry Morgan and Francois Lolonnais, they all would have known each other. But now, England and France had only a few years earlier been at war. Their colonies were less than friendly, but what of the pirates? 
Now, many of them would have fought on opposing sides during the war, but since then, had they met each other? Were any of them friendly, or were some of them antagonistic? Did they hold grudges from the war? Did they have feuds with one another? There is a wealth of drama there, but it's something we'll never know, not conclusively. Were there men who had stolen one another's lovers, or men who had stolen one another's ships? We'll actually run into that shortly. But had these pirates here gotten drunk together before? Had they fought each other in brawls? Was there a tension among them along religious lines or along national lines? Almost certainly there was, but no one thought to write it down, which irks me to no end. The Englishmen who were traveling with the French captains joined up with English crews almost immediately. Most of them went to the Bachelor's Delight, and the Frenchmen who were with the English crews joined up with French captains. Now, most of the French were in canoes, so Captain Davis gave the French one of the merchantmen that he had captured, one of those that carried flour, and he distributed all of the food and water out among them. That ship was enough to carry all of the French pirates, and Captain Groinet took command of the ship. William Dampier writes, quote, Captain Gronit, to retaliate this kindness, offered Captain Davis and Captain Swan each of them a new commission from the governor of Petit Guave. It has been usual for many years past for the governor of Petit Guave to send blank commissions to sea by many of his captains with orders to dispose of them to whom they saw convenient. Those of Petit Guave, by this means, making themselves the sanctuary of all people of desperate fortunes, and increasing their own wealth and the strength and reputation of their party. Captain Davis accepted of one, having before only an old commission, which fell to him by the inheritance at the decease of Captain Hook. But Captain Swan refused it, saying he had an order from the Duke of York neither to give offense to the Spaniards nor to receive any affront from them, and that he had been injured by them at Valdivia, where they had killed some of his men and wounded several more. So he thought he had a lawful commission of his own to write himself. I never read any of these French commissions while I was in these seas, nor did I know the import of them. In time of peace, these commissions are given as a warrant to those of each side to protect them from the adverse party. But in effect, the French do not restrain them to Hispaniola, but make them a pretense for a general ravage in any part of America, by land or sea. End quote. Captain Swan didn't want to be a privateer. This gave the rest of the crews not exactly legitimacy. They were still pirates. Remember, the English had been barred by an act of parliament from accepting any foreign commission. But... Even a flimsy paper shield here is better than no shield, so they had something with which to defend themselves. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. All of the pirates agreed it would be best to work together here in the South Seas, but they were unable to come to a consensus on command. No single captain was given a command of their fleet. They didn't choose an admiral, which usually one would. Now, perhaps if they'd been of a single nation, they would have, but not in this case. Edward Davis had the largest ship and the largest crew. He also had the most guns, so... 
He sort of served as admiral, at least for the English, but the French chose to sail more as allies than part of an armada. Now, their first order of business was to ensure that everybody had food and water and supplies, so they went ashore to collect some, and then they distributed out all of the small arms to make sure that every man on every vessel had at least a musket, some shot, and some powder. Bachelor's Delight kept her big guns, though. The entire fleet headed north to collect Captain Townley. Now, they found him in much better shape than the French had been, He'd finished up his canoes, but immediately, upon entering the Gulf of San Miguel, he captured two small armed barks. They weren't warships, but they did have big guns on board. It significantly improved their position to have at least two more ships that were armed. What's more, though, Captain Townley had news. When he left the Kuna behind, there were other pirates already crossing the Isthmus. A large group of them, in fact. Most of them were English, and they were headed for the Gulf of San Miguel. The pirates decided it would be best to wait for them, and they sent Peter Harris upriver in a small bark to search for these Englishmen and bring them into the fleet. Meanwhile, a few others went roving. They attacked small villages and a couple of ships. They weren't looking for riches. They would have been happy to find some, but that wasn't the goal. They had plenty of food, but there were several hundred men now, and they needed, well, good pots in which to cook all the food. Dampier calls them coppers. They also needed guns, and they found a few of those, but most importantly, Captain Davis asked Dampier to look over those letters. They had time, and it turns out he found something valuable, something extremely worthwhile. There was a letter from the governor at Panama to the viceroy at Lima informing him that the Windward fleet had arrived at Cartagena. Now, the fleet itself wasn't a concern to the pirates. Cartagena was on the Caribbean, not the Pacific. However, when it arrived at Cartagena, Dampier learned, word was sent to Portobello and then on to Panama. Then Panama sent this letter to the viceroy at Peru. When he received this letter, the viceroy would know it was time to send out the Plata fleet. Dampier writes, quote, The king's treasure is said to amount commonly to about 24 million of pieces of eight, besides abundance of merchants' money. End quote. That treasure was going to be on its way from Lima to Panama. That's the greatest prize that any pirate in the New World could ever hope to capture and the pirates were going to be right in its path. However, the treasure fleet would be comprised of well-armed Spanish galleons. Those were daunting ships. They would be fully manned and carrying enough guns to sink any ship that the pirates had with ease. However, all of those guns and all of those men and all of that silver filling their holds meant that the Spanish galleons would be well, they'd be riding low in the water. They'd be moving slowly. The pirate ships, on the other hand, were quick and agile. They could dart in, strike, and escape before the hulking Spanish vessel could get a volley off. There was no hope of taking any of the ships in open battle, but if they could find a straggler and nip at her heels with musket shot and swivel guns, and if they were lucky enough, even a well-timed shot with the heavy guns, then they could weaken that ship. They could pull her away from the fleet, they could board her and sail her away, with enough silver in their possession to set every man among the fleet up for life. The plan reminds me of, well, how a lion might take down prey on the savannah. They look for the slowest and the weakest in the herd. They separate them, they weaken them, they run them down, and then finally, they strike. And the pirates actually had a bit of luck here. They had been far too weak to capture even one of those ships with these tactics a few weeks earlier. Had that letter from Panama reached the Viceroy at Lima on time, they would have been hopeless. They wouldn't have had a chance to capture any treasure of worth here. But they did capture those letters. That 
delayed the departure of the Plata fleet. The Viceroy would not receive another letter for at least a few weeks' time. And then, during those few weeks that they had bought themselves accidentally, more and more men had crossed the Isthmus. They were going to join the pirates. Every man in the fleet knew that they now had a chance to go after the Plata fleet, and they voted to do so. So the fleet decided to wait. Now, when Captain Townley entered the Pacific, he captured those two barks, and they were carrying wine. So Townley distributed that wine among all of the other crews. He wanted them to drink it up so that he could use the casks to fill with fresh water. What that means is that there were hundreds of pirates lying at anchor, bored, and they had plenty of wine to keep them good and drunk. They spent their days drinking and gambling, and this inevitably led to fighting among the men, just quarreling, but a fight amongst drunken pirates could see blades drawn and guns fired and men killed. The captains tried to keep this sort of activity under control, but that led to other problems. When bored, drunk pirates aren't allowed to fight, they need some sort of outlet for their frustrations. So they started grumbling against the very men that were trying to keep order. Most notably, this happened on Bachelor's Delight. See, spring was coming on, and with the spring came endless days of torrential rain. It was basically a never-ending downpour, but sometimes it would grow violent and thunderous. So, if you'd like to imagine this next bit, think of it as a dark and stormy night. There were a large number of men on the Bachelor's Delight, perhaps 80 or more, that came from the crews of Captain Groinet and Lescouillet. They'd joined the English willingly, but they weren't loyal to Captain Davis. They were pirates that had their own allegiances, their own priorities, and they even had their own hierarchies. So that group began to plan a vote to oust Captain Davis and install their own captain. However, it became obvious that they wouldn't have the votes needed. So they started planning a mutiny. But into the midst of that growing threat, a diversion appeared. A small bark arrived, carrying Englishmen, but it sailed in from a direction they didn't expect. This one came in from the west. Now they were pirates, they were English freebooters, but apparently no one knew that they were in the region. They'd been part of a small fleet under a man named Captain William Knight, which was roving off the west coast of Mexico. This bark was carrying only about a dozen men, but it had been separated from the fleet of Captain Knight by a storm. In the aftermath of that storm, they went searching for Captain Knight, but actually got in intercepted by a Spanish vessel, so they couldn't find the captain and had to flee. They decided the best course of action would be to sail east, and then cross the Isthmus north through Darien to re-enter the Caribbean. Dampier tells us, quote, They came into the Bay of Panama, intending to go overland, back into the North Seas, but that they luckily met with us. For the Isthmus of Darien was now become a common road for privateers to pass between the North and South Seas at their pleasure. This bark of Captain Knight's had in her forty or fifty jars of brandy. She was now commanded by Mr. Henry Moore, but Captain Swan, intending to promote Captain Harris, caused Mr. Moore to be turned out, alleging that it was very likely these men were run away from their commander. Mr. Moore willingly resigned her and went aboard of Captain Swan and became one of his men. End quote. That gave the men a momentary diversion from their plans to mutiny, but only briefly. Those jars of brandy that the bark brought in only made the men more drunk and more belligerent. It became so tense on board Bachelor's Delight that men began carrying weapons everywhere they went, not just knives for work, but swords and muskets. Now, no one mentioned it, no one talked about it openly, but everybody knew that this could turn into a bad situation at any moment. And the primary complaint here was born out of boredom. The men were growing weary of waiting for the fleet, and they also feared that they might miss it. They thought that the plan might not be the best. They wanted to instead attack Panama itself immediately. Someone should perhaps have listened to them here, but nobody did. Still, that tension grew and boiled and festered. 
But before it could manifest, yet another group of pirates arrived to join the fleet. This was the group that Peter Harris had gone off to collect in his bark. He brought back with him a small fleet of canoes and periaguas. He brought in a force of 250 men that consisted of some of the most well-known and accomplished pirates of the era. William Dampier doesn't even bother to give their names. Now, he will later on, but at this moment when he introduces them, well, he's much more interested in a pages-long description of the trees of the region, which, to be fair, he does introduce the world of Europe to the avocado here. The commander of this fleet, though, well, well, this story is complex. I'll talk more about them and their journey next time. For now, though, you should know that this group was separated from the command of Lorho de Graaf. When de Graaf was preparing his raid against Campeche and rallied his forces near the Yucatan Peninsula, several pirates chose to leave his command. They decided to sail instead for the Pacific. They were led by Jean Rose, Mathurin de Martez, and Pierre Le Picard. I say that they are among the most well-known of their era, but much of that probably comes from their earlier exploits and what would come after. On this voyage, William Dampier barely mentions them. They did have a chronicler of their own, however, a man named Ravneau de Lusanne. I'm thankful that he joined this expedition because his journal gives us another fantastic primary source from a different perspective. And you can see the difference in their perspective most glaringly in the different names they give to pirates of different nationalities. When the entire force was gathered, when their whole strength was marshaled, William Dampier writes, quote, Our fleet consisted of ten sail. First, Captain Davis, 36 guns, 156 men, most English. Captain Swan, 16 guns, 140 men, all English. These were the only ships of force that we had, the rest having none but small arms. Captain Townley had 110 men, all English. Captain Gronit, 308 men, all French. Captain Harris, 100 men, most English. Captain Branley, 36 men, some English, some French. Davis's tender, 8 men. Swan's tender, 8 men. Townley's bark, 80 men. And a small bark of 30 tons made a fire ship with a canoe's crew in her. We had in all... 960 men, end quote. When he says a tender, that's just a small ship's boat. But compare that to the account of Ravno de Lusanne. Quote, On the 22nd, which was Easter Day, their fleet arrived at the King's Isles where we were. They consisted of eight sail, which, together with the two barks, they had sent to wait for our arrival, made up in all ten vessels, of which take the following account. The first served as admiral and was a frigate carrying 36 guns, commanded by one Captain David. That's Edward Davis. The next was instead a vice-admiral, had 16 guns, and was under the command of one whose name was Captain Same. That's Charles Swan. The third and fourth were two ships commanded by Captain Townsley. The fifth was a ship that could have carried 30 guns, but had none, and was commanded by Captain Groinet. The sixth was a ship commanded by Brady, that's Captain Branley. Other editions of this journal name him Branders, who arrived with the new privateers. The eighth was a long bark, commanded by a quartermaster, with a detachment of men drawn out of the fleet. End quote. Now, he doesn't make mention of him in that passage, but the two barks that he arrived on were commanded by Captain Harris. It's strange to me that neither man mentions Jean Rose, de Martez, or Pierre Le Picard. Now, de Martez wouldn't become widely known until much later, but Jean Rose and Pierre Le Picard were both already infamous pirates. The slight against Jean Rose I can understand from William Dampier's perspective. William Dampier and Edward Davis and the crew that had left Bartholomew Sharp with them had good reason to dislike Jean Rose, and Rose himself had perhaps even better reason to dislike the English. More on that next time, though. Picard, though, if he was the same Pierre Le Picard that sailed alongside Francois Lolonnais and Roque Basiliano and Henry Morgan, well, he should have been a legend among the Brethren of the Coast. 
He may not have been the same man, but if he was, well, he was definitely well-known, especially in buccaneer circles. However, here in the Pacific, without their own ships underfoot, well, they weren't captains, so they were incorporated into other crews. Groenet took on most of the Frenchmen, and the rest seemed to have joined up with Peter Harris, who brought them down to this meeting. But I'm still wondering about those relations between pirates. What kind of stories are going untold here? We will learn more about the tensions between the captains that are worth writing about, but well, I wonder what was going on among the regular crewmen, and who actually might have been here that wasn't worth writing about, at least who wasn't worth writing about yet. Was Henry Avery here at this meeting? Maybe. I mean, it's been recorded, though disputed by historians, that he served in the Third Anglo-Dutch War, and then as a logwood cutter and captain of a logwood boat there in the Bay of Campeche, and then he turned full-time buccaneer. Now, it's not suggested that he held a captaincy in the Brethren, but, but nothing really substantive exists on Avery until about 1689. By then, he was a captain of a privateer vessel in the Nine Years' War, and would soon turn pirate. However, he had to have been sailing before then. He very well might have been here at this meeting. Now, Dampier was working on his book in the 1690s, and by that time, Henry Avery was notorious. Dampier probably would have mentioned Avery if he knew that he was there, but how could Dampier be expected to have known every crewman on every vessel? Their fleet held almost a thousand men now, especially if Avery was no one of note. Dampier would have had no reason to notice some young man swabbing the deck. Now, all of that's pure speculation, of course. There's nothing to suggest he was there, and there may be some information I haven't read that contradicts me here, but Henry Avery's story is so filled with myth and uncertainty. We don't know where he was in those years right before 1689, not definitively. So, who's to say he wasn't here? You could even imagine him being one of those that crossed the Isthmus with Captain Townley, one of those who was incorporated into the crew of the Bachelor's Delight. What if he were a ringleader among those pirates? It's not impossible to imagine on one of those dark and stormy nights a young pirate, an ambitious man named Henry Avery, talking to the mates below decks, trying to convince them to mutiny against Captain Davis to take the ship for themselves and install him as captain. He did want to be a captain after all, and he would go on to engage in some good old-fashioned mutiny later on in his life. Now, none of that probably happened, but wouldn't that be cool? But it also makes me wonder who else could have been there. Up in the West Indies, Lorho de Graff and Michel de Grammont and all of that lot were busy pirating around, but that's about it. There were a few pirates up in North America, but nothing really substantial going on. There were some pirates off the west coast of Africa, but that hadn't really blown up, and none of them had reached the Indian Ocean yet. Virtually all of the rest of the pirates in the world were here. Certainly not all of them, but definitely most of the pirates from the British Isles, be they English or Welsh or Scottish or Irish, nearly all of them were here in the Pacific. Now, we know the names of the captains that were here, and we'll actually get to introduce a few other pirates that would go on to sail the pirate round and would interact closely with men like Henry Avery, but who else might have been on board one of these vessels? Was Thomas II here? Probably not, but maybe. He was, at this point, probably in Rhode Island, but we aren't certain. He could have been here. Was William Kidd here? I mean, why not? He would have been 30 years old when this meeting took place. Now, we know that he relocated from Scotland to New York early on in life, but then history loses track of him until, again, 1689 at the outbreak of the Nine Years' War. But he had to have been sailing before that. Even the most silver-tongued man wouldn't be able to convince a crew full of hardened buccaneers with their bellies full of wine to commit mutiny and to follow him without some sort of experience under his belt. 
So who's to say that Kid and Avery and Thomas too, who's to say they weren't here? Any number of well-known British pirates could have been here at this meeting. But we can't know any of that to be the case. I'm just letting my imagination wander. This last group of pirates arrived on March 22nd, 1685. Now they all resolved to await the Silver Fleet, and wait they did. For nearly two months they cruised around the Bay of Panama, hoping to catch wind of the Spanish fleet. They created a sort of web of the larger ships among them, with the smaller vessels running word between, in case anyone had any word that the Spanish fleet was coming. The English among them captured a small ship out of Panama that had virtually nothing of worth on board, but it did bring them news that their king, Charles II, had died. However, that meant very little to a bunch of pirates in the Pacific. Then came the morning of 28 May 1685. It was dark and cloudy, and a heavy rainfall began to pour upon them. But at about 11 a.m., the rain began to lessen and finally clear up. Then the lookout on board Captain Groinet's ship spotted sails on the horizon. But he weighed anchor and set a course for the main, away from the incoming ships. This is what caught the attention of the English among them, who looked around and saw the sails shortly thereafter. Here's the problem. A treasure fleet sailing from Lima in Peru to Panama City would be coming from the southeast, headed northwest. That's how the pirates arrayed themselves. That's where they built their web to catch the fleet. But these ships weren't coming from the southeast. They were coming from the northwest, from Panama. What the pirates didn't know, and what they wouldn't learn until later, is that the treasure fleet managed to slip by them a few weeks earlier. It had already safely deposited its silver in Panama. And then the fleet stocked up on guns and sailors and soldiers. Then the treasure fleet, now carrying arms, sailed out to meet the pirates. They may not have known what happened, but Davis and Dampier and all the rest realized something was wrong. William Dampier writes, quote, Captain Swan and Townley came aboard of Captain Davis to order how to engage the enemy, who we saw came purposely to fight us, they being in all fourteen sail beside Periagos, rowing with twelve and fourteen oars apiece. Six sail of them were ships of good force, first the Admiral, forty-eight guns, four hundred and fifty men, the Vice Admiral, forty guns, four hundred men, the Rear Admiral, thirty-six guns, three hundred and sixty men, a ship of twenty-four guns, three hundred men, one of eighteen guns, two hundred and fifty men, and one of eight guns, two hundred men, two great fire ships, six ships with only small arms, having eight hundred men on board them all, besides two or three hundred men in Periagos. This account of their strength we had afterwards from Captain Knight. End quote. That's a serious fighting force. I mean, you know that joke about the pirate captain that orders his men to bring him his red shirt before battle against overwhelming force? Again and again he leads them to victory in his red shirt. He does this so his men will never see his blood. Then a royal armada comes into view, the men eagerly await their captain's order to bring him his red shirt, and then he orders, Bring me my brown pants. Yeah, I imagine that sentiment was felt with the might of the Spanish treasure fleet bearing down on them. The pirates had intended to use their superior speed and maneuverability to capture a treasure galleon, but instead they were forced to use it to survive. The armada closed on them about noon, but the pirates had already set sail. They danced away from a confrontation, slipping just out of the Spanish range, but then the pirates attempted to come around the armada for a strike. But their gunboats and periaguas sorted out and fought the pirates off. The galleons then tacked about, and this time the pirates were well within range. They fired off a volley at the pirates and scored more than a few hits, but the pirates were still nimble enough to escape much damage. By this time, daylight was failing, and the pirates pulled back. When dusk began to settle, the Spanish admiral used his ship's lamp to issue commands to the other ships in the fleet. There was a series of commands for the night, lasting for some time. Now, the English knew what several of them meant, but most importantly, they recognized the command to lay anchor. 
the pirates kept their eyes open throughout the night. Several times they saw that lamp signal additional commands, but it never came any closer to them. And then dawn came. Dampier writes, quote, This was only a stratagem of theirs, for this light was put out to the second time at one of their barks topmost head, and then she was sent to the leeward, which deceived us, for we thought still the light was in the admiral's top, and by that means thought ourselves to windward of them. In the morning, contrary to our expectation, we found they were coming upon us with full sail, so we ran for it. And after a running fight all day, and having taken a turn almost round the Bay of Panama, we came to an anchor again, in the very same place from whence we set out in the morning. End quote. In case you didn't catch that, what happened here is the Admiral, the largest ship in the fleet, gave the commands when the sun was still above the horizon. Then, later into the night, they had a bark give out commands that looked very much the same in the dark of night. They couldn't see what ship it was coming from. But when morning came, they saw the might of the fleet bearing down on them. So they ran. It wasn't a disaster, exactly. No ships had been lost, and virtually no one was seriously injured, but it was a blow. The pirates were deeply disappointed. They'd expected to end the day rich men, and now, nothing. Captain Groinet, nearly all the Frenchmen in the fleet, well, they decided to sit the battle out. And... Frankly, that was probably wise. When an enemy force comes upon you in overwhelming strength from an unexpected direction, it's best to disengage and live to fight on another day. As Dampier says, it's best to run for it. Even had he engaged the Spanish, he didn't have any guns on board. He had men with muskets, but no big guns. His ship would have done very little good in the fight. But the English were angry at the French. Next time, we'll take a look at the reckoning that followed that, and the pirates' next moves. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd also like to thank everyone who has helped support the show. To those of you who have become a patron on Patreon or donated at the website, or who have spread the word about the show, either on social media or real life, I couldn't do this without you. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.